repent. Bless the Lord. Matthew 16, starting to read at verse 13. For some of us, this is a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. It says, When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. For probably not too long this morning, I want to preach to you from this thought, why you need the church. Why you need the church. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. This passage in Matthew 16 is well loved by apostolics because of the revelation that Peter has of who Jesus is that he has an understanding that this carpenter from Nazareth is actually the anointed incarnation of the one true and living God. Jesus very quickly lets Peter know that this is not something that he has come up with via his own intellect, via his own understanding that Peter's been staying up late studying the Word of God and has seen this himself, but rather that God himself has given Peter this supernatural insight. And then Jesus goes on to declare that it is upon this rock. It is upon this foundation stone. Not Peter, as some people erroneously believe. Peter is not who the church was built upon. But the church is built upon the revelation that Peter had. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, that's what the church is built upon. That is our foundation. And Jesus said that it was upon that rock that he would build his church. So I would ask you this question today. If if the church that somebody may be going to is not built on that rock, then is it his church? Amen. We need to be in the church that Jesus is building. Amen. I want to be where God wants me to be. I don't want to be building something that doesn't have God's endorsement, that doesn't have his blessing, that doesn't have his anointing because my efforts are feeble They are puny, they are pathetic, and without Him, I can build nothing. But with Him, He can build in us and through us and among us. And then Jesus went on to say, And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we're going to detour just a little bit this morning. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want us to understand what that statement means. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. In biblical times, particularly in the Old Testament, the gates of a city were the place where the elders and the authorities sat. They made decisions. They passed judgments. They ruled over that city or that community. They, they decided what was happening, particularly with important matters. They, they governed what happened in that city and really what went in and what was allowed access to that city. And when we read the expression from the Scripture, the gates of hell, it's sometimes been understood by some to be referring to the devil's headquarters or his command center 
this place from which the devil operates and gives directions and instructions to the demonic forces that he oversees to cause chaos and godlessness throughout the earth. And that preaches really well, but it's not accurate. It's not biblically accurate. You see, hell, when we think of, of hell, we think of the place of eternal suffering and torment and the lake of fire. It is prepared for the devil and his angels. That is a fact. If you see Matthew, Justin's going to help me here, Matthew 25 and 41. It says, Then shall ye say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It is prepared for the devil and his angels. The book of Revelation tells us that when the end is come and the final judgment of God is being dispersed, it's being pronounced, that the devil will be cast into hell. In Revelation 20 and 10 it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's something that's yet to happen. The devil is not in hell yet. We, we have this misunderstanding that, he, that his, he's comfortable there. We see comics and cartoons of devils with horns and pitchforks and flames lapping around their feet as if it's just like, oh yeah, this is where we work every day. But that's the wrong understanding of hell because the devil will suffer in hell as much, if not more, than fallen humanity will. Hell is created and designed specifically for the punishment of the devil and of those that fell with him. It's not designed for humanity. But when humanity rejects God and accepts the devil's message, they will unfortunately go there with him. Amen. But it is very clear to me that he is not there right now. The devil does not want to go to hell. It is not his office. It is not his headquarters. He, he's not sitting there in some overheated room with all these screens overseeing the sin across the globe. He does not want to go anywhere near hell. Because the God that is holy and just and will dispense judgment as he sees fit has prepared that place, not for the devil's comfort, but for his torment. It says day and night. It says that in Revelation 20 and 10, we just read that he will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. So we need to understand that. And so without spending too long today, the key to understanding the statement, the gates of hell, is to realize that the Greek language from which we get our New Testament, there are several different Greek words that are translated as the word hell in the English Bible, particularly in the King James Bible. Some of them are referring to that place of torment, that place that we think about. When, when we talk about hell, we're thinking about that place of torment and suffering and eternity separated from God. And some of them are referring to that. But some of them are actually referring to the grave, to death and to the grave and to the place of the departed, if I can use that expression. And that's really what this verse is talking about in Matthew 16. And to give you an under, to demonstrate just quickly what I mean by different words in the English language, if Justin, if you'll throw up Revelation 20 and 14, again, we're talking about judgment at the last time. It says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Now, if the word hell there is talking about the lake of fire and the place of torment, then it's telling us that the lake of fire is cast into the lake of fire, which wouldn't actually be possible. 
So what it's talking about here is it's talking about death and the grave. The place of death, that point, place where we go back into the earth, that consequence of sin, those things are thrown into the, into the lake of fire. It's important that we understand that. Amen. So, again, what does it mean? The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Sin and death were never part of God's original creation plan. Now, God knew what men would do, and that's, you know, that's one of the hardest things for us to understand about God, that he would make man knowing that man would mess up and that he made him anyway. But that's why we're not God and he is. Amen. But when he made Adam, Adam was sinless. And Eve was sinless. Not only were they sinless, they didn't even have a sinful nature. And they had within them in the garden the capacity to resist the devil when he came. They had the power to resist Satan when he came, but he came subtly. And he tempted and he questioned the word of God and they chose to sin. And when they did that, they surrendered more than they realized. And they subjected humanity to the power of sin and to the torment of the devil. And because of that, every person that's ever been born has an appointment with death. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. You and I, if the Lord tarries, will die. All of us. Whether it's we get older and our bodies wear out, whether we get ill or we have an accident and we go before our time is the expression we like to use. Sometimes I don't think anybody thinks it's their time when it actually happens. But we will all have that moment if the Lord tarries where we will breathe for the last time. Where our eyes will close in sleep and possibly not open again. That is appointed unto humanity. And that is a consequence of the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden. But that death is not the greatest consequence. Because when they allowed sin to enter in, not only do these bodies die, but those that do not obey the word of God will be spiritually separated from God for eternity. And in a place of torment that we've just read about. Amen. So getting back to where the devil fits into this, the devil is the tempter of humanity. He is the one that introduced sin to humanity. He is the one that deceived Adam and Eve, and he exists for no other purpose than to destroy as much of mankind as he possibly can. Rejected from his original purpose, cast out of heaven because of his rebellion against God, the devil wants to destroy man who was made in the image of God. That is the reason, that is his primary focus in everything that he does. And so because that's who he is, we could say in a certain sense, the devil sits in the gates of the city of sin and death, doing everything that he can to lure people in, to tempt and to draw humanity into a life of sin and brokenness from God. And when people respond to his temptation, as just about all of humanity does. They purchase death for their souls. And they are powerless to free themselves from it. I cannot take away your sin. I cannot take away my sin. I can acknowledge it. I can recognize it. I can try to improve myself, and I may be able to improve my conduct, but I cannot remove sin. I do not have anything that can remove the stain of sin from my soul. And because the devil has this 
power, and he has power. The scripture refers to him. Let's read Hebrews 2 and 14, please, Justin. It refers to the devil as having the power of death. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, speaking about Jesus, himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. So that scripture lets us know that because of the devil's role and of what he wants to do, he is the one that is drawing humanity into a godless eternity. But praise the Lord, because this same verse also introduces to us why the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Because Jesus came to die in our place and to destroy the devil. That's what the scripture says. 1 John 3 and 8 tells us the same thing. It says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. And for this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Amen. Jesus came. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He opened the blind eyes. But those things were secondary. His primary purpose, the reason he was manifest, was to destroy the works of the devil. Amen. In Colossians 2 and 13 to 15, it says, And you being dead in your sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's what we were when we were in sin, but it says that he has quickened us together with him. He has made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, the law that declared that we were sinners, we were in opposition to the law of God. He nailed it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. God declared, I have defeated the enemy. Hallelujah. When Jesus submitted his sinless body to the cross and died, he paid our debt in full. That's what was his purpose. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just about the payment of debt. Because when he rose from the dead, when he defeated death, he removed the power of death from the devil. Revelation 1 and 18 says, I am he, speaking about Jesus, that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Hallelujah. He told Peter in Matthew 16, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. But that was future tense. He didn't give them to Peter in Matthew 16 because he hadn't yet taken the keys of hell and death away from the devil when he died and he rose again. But when he did that, when he went to the grave and when he rose again on the morning of the third day, it wasn't a literal set of keys, but in a symbolic sense. He took the keys of death and hell from the devil. He said, they don't belong to you anymore. And then on the other hand, a few weeks later, he said to Peter, here's a different set of keys. He said, I'm the door. Put these in the lock and see what happens. Hallelujah. 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 And he gave those keys to Peter. And Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, these look pretty good. He said, if you will repent if you will be baptized in Jesus' name, if you will be filled with the Holy Ghost, the door opens and you can enter in and be saved. Hallelujah. That's why Jesus said, if any man be in me, he is a new creature. 
It's not some weird, twisted way of getting inside his physical body, but it's when you obey those keys and you take them in your hand, so to speak, and do what God's Word says, you enter in to being a part of Jesus Christ. And here's the awesome thing. When you walk through that one door into Jesus, he'll close the other one. That door that used to hold us of death the gates of hell and the grave that we used to be captive to. He said, if you'll walk into this life, I'll close that door. And as long as you stay within here, that door is never open to you again. Am I saying you'll never die? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. These bodies will die, but death is a whole different thing for a child of God than for somebody that's not saved. Amen. It is a completely different story. Amen. My body is still going to die, but just like he rose from the dead, the grave's not going to keep me. It's just temporary. It's just a spot that I'm waiting until he returns. Amen. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15 and 55, Paul didn't say, you're never going to die. He said, oh, death, where is your sting? He said, the sting, the part that is painful, the part that has the consequences, when you're in the church, that is removed. And so even when we die and we bury our loved ones and we shed tears because we miss them because they're absent from us, if they're born again of water and spirit, I promise you they're not crying. Because there's no sting in the grave when you've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Paul told them again in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. He said, we're not in God's presence in that eternal sense yet. We can't see him face to face. He said, that's why we walk by faith and not by sight. But then he said, we are confident. And I say, willing rather to be absent from the body. Paul didn't have suicidal tendencies. He wasn't trying to get himself killed, although it looked like it sometimes in the book of Acts. But he was saying, he said, if we only understood what waits for us. He said we would be happy to leave this body behind, to put aside this mortal body that's flawed and corrupt and to go to be in the presence of the Lord forever. But then he said in verse 9, he said, wherefore we labor. This is why we work. This is why we serve him. This is why we live for him, that whether I'm in this life or in the next, I'll be accepted of him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When you walk through that door, when you use those keys and you walk through that door, you don't only become saved from your sin, but you become a part of the church. Not a, not a congregation, although you do become a part of a congregation, not an organization, although that has its place as well, but you become a part of the church. You become a part of what Jesus said that he was going to build upon a rock that the gates of hell cannot touch. I've been, to, I haven't been to a lot of funerals and I'm not in a hurry to collect them. I don't like funerals all that much. But I've been to funerals where people are born again and I've been to funerals where people are not born again. And I want to tell you there is a completely different feeling. They are two completely different events. To the outward observer, they look the same. There's a chapel, there's a coffin. I'm not trying to be insensitive. There's hearse and flowers and, and all those things. But when you know that that body that's in that coffin that at one point was washed in the blood of Jesus and filled with his spirit, it completely changes the way you see that funeral. First funeral I ever had the privilege of officiating was Brother Paul's mother, Sister Ida Turkington. It doesn't get better for your first funeral than a lady that's 97, I think your mum was, Brother Paul, 97 years old, 
live for the Lord, filled with the Spirit, washed in the blood of the Lamb. You know, it's, there's always that emotion from our side, but it doesn't get much better than that. Long life, goodness of God, and ready to meet the Lord. Amen. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. What does that mean? That means whether I live in this body or this body dies, I'm still in the church. It doesn't matter whether I live or I die. I'm either in the church here or I'm in the church there. It doesn't make any difference. And when I leave this life as a child of God, it is the greatest promotion that you can ever receive. The battle is over. Temptation is gone. Sickness and physical frailties are finished. Mental inadequacies, any problems and struggles are gone. So even if I die, even if I die as a result of physical persecution, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. You see, the devil still is trying to bring people into that city. He's still trying to lure every man, every woman, every young person into sin and death. But the difference now is that Jesus has the keys and he can set them free. And if they will reach out to him, he can say, you can come out of there anytime you like. If you will hear my voice, if you will come to me, you can come out of that city. That's why that demoniac at Gadara, when Jesus and the apostles landed on that beach, that demon-possessed man come running. You know, he, was, he lived in the graveyards. He cut himself and screamed at night and terrified the locals. Such was the power of evil spirits in that man that when they tried to tie him up with chains, they couldn't even hold him. But no matter how possessed he was, if he wanted to run to Jesus, he could still run to Jesus. And it doesn't matter this morning how broken a life may be, how messed up your life may be, how perverse and twisted and corrupted. The keys are in his hand. And if you will reach out to him, Hallelujah. He can still set you free. Hallelujah. I'm talking today about why you need the church. You don't need religion. Religion is not going to get one single person into heaven. You need to be born again of water and spirit. That's not the statement of a, of a denomination. That's the statement of the book of Acts. Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you're not born again of water... Spirit, not going to be able to enter heaven. That doesn't get much more blunt than that. Baptized a young man on Wednesday night. I asked him, you know, I always ask people why. They come to me and say, I want to get baptized. That's fantastic. Why? I want to know what's going on. He said, well, he said, I gave my heart to Jesus some time back in the past. He, he believed in the Lord and he wanted, he considered himself to be a believer. But he said, I've come to read in the scripture that if I'm not born of the water, I'm not going to heaven. I said, that'll do me. Let's fill the tank. And let's baptize this guy in Jesus' name. Because that's what the Bible says. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Being a member of any particular group, organization, the club will not get you into heaven. You know, some, even just the name of Jesus in isolation will not get you into heaven. What do I mean by that? You can wear it on your T-shirt. You can wear it on a hat. You can attach it to your clothing in any way you like. The devil couldn't care less about your T-shirt. And read the book of Acts. There were these seven guys that decided that they were going to borrow Paul's Jesus. They went to that demon-possessed person and they said, we, we command you in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches about. They wanted to use the authority of Jesus' name by proxy. Because they'd seen Paul do it. 
Paul was talking to demon-possessed people and casting demons out all over the place. They thought, this looks like fun. Obviously, there's something about the name of Jesus. They got that part right. But they did not have relationship. You know, you can say it as loud as you want. You can wear it on your shirt. You can put it on the wall of your house if you want. It might affect your resale value. But without you knowing who he is, without faith in that name, all of that is, is without any authority at all. Because that evil spirit within that man responded and he said, Paul, I know who Paul is. I've seen what he's been doing. He's been causing a lot of trouble. And I know who Jesus is. But who are you guys? The Bible says that that demon-possessed man leapt on them. Basically, we would say he beat them up. And they ran screaming. And suddenly that thing that Paul was doing didn't seem quite as much fun as they first thought it did. You're going to use the name of Jesus. You better believe in who he is. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. I die in this life. I'm in the church eternal. The Lord gives me a long life. I'm in the church in the temporal here. Either way, if you want to be in that one, you've got to be in this one first. That's how it works. Amen. No more temptation. No more sickness. The final. Well, that's why there are songs that are written by Christian musicians that say things like, there ain't no grave going to hold my body down. Old Mahalia Jackson, I think it was, sang that old song, on that great getting up morning, fare thee well. On that day when the dead in Christ shall rise. Brother Maura Ewing said it like this. He said, when you look for me, he said, look around the throne. I'll be singing with the angels. He said, that's where I'm going to be. Hallelujah. You need the church this morning. You need to be in the church this morning. Hallelujah. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means those that are called out or the called out ones. The church has always been people that were called out. Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to a place that God would show him. Moses was called out of the desert to go to Egypt to call his people out of bondage and to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Hallelujah. You and I, in the New Testament, the Bible tells us, are called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God's people have always been called out. But God's plan has always been that he would have a people, not just a person, Abraham was one man, I get that, but the plan was always that from Abraham would come a nation. Moses was called out of the wilderness as one man, but he led a multitude that they guessed was anywhere between 1.5 and 4 million people out of Egypt. God has always desired to have a people. There is a reason for that. Amen. I'm glad today in the New Testament that I don't have to be born into one of the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm glad that I don't have to be able to consult ancient scrolls to find my lineage going all the way back to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham because the New Testament says that out of every nation, out of every kindred, and out of every tribe, he is going to have a church. And the only name that matters now is the name of Jesus. It doesn't matter who my father was or who my grandfather was as long as my heavenly father recognizes me as his son. That's all that matters. Hallelujah. God has always designed and desired and functioned and operated with a body of people. Nobody was ever designed to exist in isolation. 
in their relationship with God. Humanity is not designed to exist like that. People that live in isolated lives that lock themselves away from society for whatever reason have some sort of dysfunction. Some people say, you know, I don't like people. Well, you've got a problem because you're a people. Humanity was never designed to live in isolation and the church was never designed for you to exist on your own. When somebody begins to talk to you about, oh, I don't need a church, I don't need to go to church, I've got the Word of God, I'm filled with the Spirit, that's all I need, you need to be very careful of that kind of thinking. The Word of God describes the church as a vine, as a, as a plant, as a tree that you must be connected to. It's used again and again, the parallel of a body that is fitly framed together. All the pieces together. You need the church. You need to be in the church. I, I desperately need the church. I can tell you without doubt today that if it wasn't for the household of faith, I would not be walking with God today. Because we need, God has designed it that we would have each other. That we would be, that doesn't mean we have to go and live in a commune. I'm not interested in living that close with all of you. I'm sorry. I'm not going to go and find ourselves some compound somewhere with 18-foot walls and barbed wire and all live together and wear the same color and eat the same food. No, that's not happening. That's crazy stuff. But there needs to be something about us that we are called out together. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. When you and I hear the call to come out of darkness... When we hear the gospel and we obey it, we become a part of something that is built upon Jesus himself, that death has no hold on. You need to be a part of the body of Christ. I don't know who this is for this morning, but we need the church. Some people think it's optional. That's false. It's not optional. The church of God helps us. It helps to keep us on track. Even, even in the New Testament, you find the Apostle Paul, who was a man that had spiritual experiences that blow my mind. And he talks about the things that the Lord showed him in the Holy Ghost and, and the, the visions and dreams and revelations that he had. But even Paul, with all of that incredible spiritual stuff, went up to Jerusalem, met with the elders. He said, I wanted to make sure I was on track. Now, most of us would say, I heard from God. I don't care what you bunch think. But he said, even after all that, he said, I wanted to make sure I wasn't running in vain. Bless the Lord. These are some of the things. This is not a comprehensive list. Or we'd be here all day. But these are some of the things, the benefits of being connected, of being a part of the body. The first thing is you have life. You have life. You have life as an individual as well, but... When you're a part of the body of Christ, just like your natural body, any part of your natural body is only living as long as it's connected. And if it becomes disconnected somehow, you have a short window of time where they can reattach that before it's too late. You cut your hair. We've got a friend who's a preacher in Melbourne, was working in his shed a year or two back. Some of you know Brothers Danko Haveron. His family, I think it was a Saturday morning, his family was still sleeping in, took his finger off with a power saw. Picked it up and drove himself to hospital. <laughs> I'd have been passed out on the floor. They would have come and found me later. But he picked his finger up, put it in a plastic bag, got in the car and drove himself to hospital. Because he acted quickly, they stitched that thing back on. Now, it's not quite, it's like this all the time now. 
So if he's given directions, it might get confusing. But he had a small window of time to reconnect before death began to set into that digit. And it was too long and too far. It's the same spiritually. You cut yourself off, you instantly initiate the dying process. You may not die on the spot, but when you disconnect from the body, from the source of life, you begin instantly to begin to die. When you're connected to the body, you have growth. From infancy to adulthood, these bodies grow in different parts, but they all grow at the same time. They're part of a whole. I'm glad that I didn't get to be six foot two and still have my two-year-old feet. I'd have fallen over an awful lot. That's not that funny, Sister Nari. But as my legs grew long and my feet grew bigger, my shoulders got broader, you know, your body grows. They're all different parts, but that growth happens corporately. You know, some people, you know, we laugh sometimes. Kids are born with great big feet. We say they have to grow into their feet or well, I'm not going to pick on any particular part of the body because we might embarrass people. But, but your body grows together. Your feet only grow because they're connected to your legs. I'm not medically brilliant, but I think that's pretty obvious. You know, the body, and you know, we help each other to grow. Imperfect brethren being perfected together. That's the concept of the scripture. Ephesians 4 and 13, till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. We, it says, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It uses the word till we come, not till you come. We are being growing together. Our imperfections are actually helping to perfect one another. That's the way he works. You have strength when you're connected to the body. Now, I got pretty big hands, but the muscles in this hand, they're not the biggest muscles you're ever going to see. And this hand on its own, it's not going to be able to lift a whole lot. But that hand connected to my arm, my tendons, and sinews, and bigger muscles and bones, which is connected to my shoulder and the muscles in my back, suddenly that hand has the capacity to lift things that in isolation it could never lift. And I could get Chi-Chi and hold him above my head this morning, but I'm not going to do that. I don't think our insurance would cover it if I dropped him. But that hand on its own, as much as it's completely functional, it lacks nothing. All the fingers are there. Everything works as far as I'm aware like it should. Its strength is drawn from its connection to the body. And that's how it works for us spiritually as well. Amen. You know, when we are connected to the body, we have healing. When your body is hurt, your physical body, the rest of the body works to provide healing. But here's the irony, and this is what I feel like the Lord laid upon me while I was praying. He said, often it's the body that hurts itself and then heals itself. Think about most of the minor accidents, accidents, accidents that you have. Who does that? Who kicks your toe? Who cuts your finger? For the frost, who bangs your head when you're gardening? He's always telling me how often he bangs his head. We do that to ourselves. We slam our finger in the drawer. We touch the hot stove. We go on and on. Most of those things are self-inflicted. 
But then at the same time, once you've inflicted pain upon yourself, the first thing you want to do is to help yourself get better. Spiritually, it's the same. Often, the hurts we afflict upon one another, if we're honest, because we're imperfect. But then we need to also work to be able to heal together. If we treated our bodies, if we treated the hurt in our bodies, like sometimes we treat hurt in relationships, this would be a church full of amputees. Every time you stub your toe, you cut your foot off, well, you wouldn't do it again after that. But if that's how we treated these natural bodies. But sometimes hurt and healing come from being in the body. That's how God designed it to be. That's why these natural bodies heal. If I cut my finger and I've done it, I don't know how, I used to burn, I tell people I used to burn myself for a living. I've been as a pastry chef, I used to burn myself all the time. But my body would heal that burn. I don't understand all the science. Somebody else can explain that to me later. But somehow, over a period of days, depending how bad the burn was, my body would heal it. It would provide the necessary components to renew and restore and regrow and heal that injury. If I had a burnt my hand on the oven and said, stupid hand, and cut it off, I'd never burnt that hand again. That's definitely true. But the damage would be to myself. Healing. And hurt often comes from the body of Christ. But when you belong to the church, when you belong to the body of Christ and you come to the house of God and you stand up to worship next to somebody that might have hurt you and somebody that you might have hurt and you raise your hands together in the house of the Lord and you begin to worship Him and present yourself as a living sacrifice and say, God, here I am. I want to please you. The blood of Jesus can come down and it can take care of offenses and it can take care of hurts and His Spirit can come in like that balm of Gilead and begin to soothe and begin to heal. But it will only happen as long as we stay in the body. We've got to stay. It's how God operates. If we stay in His body, then we can be healed. Then we can be cleansed. Then we can be strengthened. But when hurt causes you to cut off, hurt does not heal. In fact, if you cut yourself off when you've been hurt, the last and most sustaining memory you have is that of pain. We all get hurt. All of us. If you don't, you're some sort of machine. But all of us get hurt and all of us hurt. And often we hurt without even realizing that we're hurting somebody else. We're focused on, you know, sometimes task-orientated people, people that are driven are the ones that hurt others without realizing it. So if you're task-orientated, you can take that on board. Thank you, Jesus. That's me. Sometimes because we're focused on what we're doing, we... we, we don't even realize that we've stood on somebody's toes or run over somebody or or done something along the way because we've just got we're doing our job and we do it without realizing and we have to try to recognize when we do it but then the people that have been hurt also have to recognize the intent wasn't there and we have to both grow through that bless the lord you know when you're in the church you have unity and purpose or at least you can you can. Even in the first century church, even in that apostolic church after the day of Pentecost where 
they didn't have constitutions or have to register with the government or all the stuff that we have to deal with today. They had organization and structure. They worked together. They gave to help churches in other places. You know, they didn't officially have a missions department, but Paul is recorded as taking up offerings and taking them to help brethren in different places. They worked together. Amen. Even without organization. Let me say something about organization just to make this very clear. Organization is necessary, but it is not the be-all and end-all. Organization serves a function. It is a system. It helps us to get things done. But you, are, you will never go to heaven by belonging to an organization. That, that doesn't happen. But being a part of an organization helps us to know what we believe because that is the main thing that identifies organizations is what they believe. It allows us to identify what we believe. It allows us to work together for the kingdom of God in our local church and beyond our local church. Do you know how much this church, if we, if we existed by ourselves, we wouldn't really have the capacity to make a great difference in, in overseas missions. But what we're able to give, together with what the church on the south side of town is able to give, the church in Adelaide, the churches in Melbourne, and around the country, because we are working together, we're able to make a difference on the mission field. And it's important. And people, some people get really bent out of shape about organization, but organization is just the mechanism of helping us to get things done. You know, even Jesus needed a donkey to ride on. The donkey wasn't the Savior, but the donkey was the vehicle that carried the Savior. An organization is not the gospel, but it helps to carry the gospel. Now, I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about this, but I don't believe, and this may upset some folks, I hope not, but I don't believe in independent churches. Let me explain why not. Churches that go independent have usually belonged to some sort of group, then decided they didn't like that anymore and said, we're going to do our own thing. Now, what happens there is one of two things. If you are truly independent, as independence by definition means, you don't have anything to do with anybody else. That's genuine independence. Now, if that's the approach you take, I'm not sure how much of a difference you can make on the mission field. I'm not sure who you're working together with. I'm not sure how that fits in with the model that comes out of the book of Acts where it talks, where Paul said, you know, Paul went from Corinth to Galatia to Ephesus to Philippi to Antioch to Jerusalem. They were all together. So genuine independence, in the pure sense of the word, means you have nothing to do with anybody. That's not, I don't believe that's a biblical model. The other kind of independence is where people like most of the part of what a particular organization does, but leave because they got upset about how something was done, and then they fellowship with all different kinds of people. Now, what that does is that gives them fellowship without accountability. Accountability is biblical. Say it with me. We'll, we'll start a mantra. Accountability is biblical. Say that again and again, and then we can introduce all kinds of crazy things. No, I'm just kidding. But the idea of having elders, Paul, we just we talked about Paul. He went up to Jerusalem to make sure he was on track. We talked recently about how Paul confronted the apostle Peter when he was out of line. There was accountability even in the first century church. There were people that Paul wrote to churches and he said, you're making a mistake. 
Read the book of 1 Corinthians. He wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, you've got a long list of things you need to fix up. Now, that was only effective if they were accountable to him. The, the whole idea of accountability is a God thing. But people try to get out from under it because the, here's the thing. And forgive me if I'm out of line here, but the desire to be independent is a desire for, self, for self-will. To do what I want. To have church my way. To do things the way that I want to do. Doesn't work. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. David said, and I'm almost done. David said in the 122nd Psalm, he said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now David's house of the Lord and our house of the Lord are not quite the same model. But it's the same principle. It's the ecclesia. It's those that are called out and separated to worship God, to be His people, to obey His word, to live the way that He would have us to live. But that, that's a very positive verse. You know, he's like, I was glad to go to God's house. But in the 73rd Psalm, David was going through a hard time. He was looking at the wicked, and he seemed like everything he was trying to do was righteous, was causing pain, and the wicked were being blessed and fat and so much, you know. Biblical language is hilarious. They talk about your eyes popping out as being a sign of blessing. But he was looking at the lost and he was like, the wicked are just doing everything wrong and their lives are going from strength to strength. I'm trying to serve God and my life's a mess. And he said, in fact, my foot almost slipped. I nearly gave up on God because everything I'm doing seems to be a waste waste of time. But then he said, until, until I went to the sanctuary, until I went back to God's house, I heard the word of God. I got myself back on track and I realized the day is coming. Bless the Lord. You see, sometimes when we come to church, it's with a heart full of praise and worship, rejoicing in the goodness of God with a testimony on our lips. Other times we come into the house of God, we're struggling. We're discouraged. We're downcast. We're confused. We're hurt. We need a refuge. We need a strong tower. Then there's other times we come with a desire in our hearts to be an encouragement to a brother or a sister. Take them by the hand, put your arm around them and say, bro, you can make it. Come on. God's going to bring you through. Bless the Lord. Oh, sometimes we've got decisions we need to make. We need direction. We need a word from God. And a preacher will stand in a pulpit and preach a message like somebody told him your business. Because God is in control. You need the church today. You need to be in the church today. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. If Jesus is really coming back, and I believe he is, if we really are living in the last days, and I believe we are, if the devil exists for no other purpose but to steal and to kill and destroy, then I need the church more today than I needed it yesterday. I need my brothers and sisters more than ever before. I need to be in the church that Jesus is building on the rock where the gates of hell shall not prevail. You know, as long as I'm in the family of God and I'm standing on that rock, it doesn't matter what comes against me, even if it costs me my life. I have no desire to be in the next chapter of Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've never read that, 
don't read it when you're having a hard time. It's a book that records a lot of people through history that died for the gospel. I don't have a desire to be a martyr. But if things take that turn in our society, the gates of hell. Let me encourage you with that verse today. If you, the Lord tarries and we begin to, to bury some of our loved ones in this family, they're not staying there. It's temporary. Hallelujah. The Lord himself, the Bible says, shall descend from heaven with a shout. But the voice of the archangel and the trump of God shall sound. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive shall join them in the air forever to be with the Lord. That's why he says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. When somebody's life just seems to be one problem after another, hang on. Hang on. The gates of hell will not prevail. Hallelujah. If I go to the grave and God hasn't delivered me, it doesn't matter because I'm going on. Hallelujah. Brother Justin, if I could have that last passage of Scripture, please. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's turn there together. I'm coming to a close. Hebrews 10 and 19. Tenth chapter of the book of Hebrews, the first half of it, roughly half of it, talks to us about how the New Testament church is better than the church in the wilderness. You know, that's what the book of Acts refers to the Hebrews as. They were the church in the wilderness. Even back then they were calling it a church. And it talks to us about why in this new covenant we have so much more privilege and blessing than they did in the book of Exodus. And then in verse 19, with that as its platform, it says, Having therefore, brethren, because of this, We have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. They tore his flesh on the cross. The veil in the temple was torn. And having a high priest over the house of God, he's our high priest. And in verse 22 it says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of the faith. You need to know what you believe this morning having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Amen. There are two instructions that are given to us here, two specific specific instructions in verse 22 and 23 first thing is it says let's draw near bible says if you draw near to him he will draw near to you if i reach out to him he's not far from me he hears my cry i need to draw near to him and then the second instruction is in verse 23 it says we need to hold fast take a firm grip on what you believe and how you're going to live and don't let it go Take a hold of it without wavering. The Bible says that part of growing together up into the fullness of the stature of the man, Christ Jesus, is that we are no longer tossed about with every wind of doctrine. But we need to hold fast and not be up and down like the winds and the waves of the sea. Hang on. Hold fast. Why? For he is faithful that promised. But then verse 24 and 25 give us 
some instructions of how to draw near, of how to hold fast. It starts out by telling us in verse 24 to consider one another, to provoke, to encourage, to challenge, and to love and to good works. What does it mean by good works? It means by being faithful. It means by continuing to serve God, to live righteously. It's not talking about good deeds like a Boy Scout does. But there's nothing wrong with doing those, but that has a greater meaning in the Scripture. We are to provoke one another unto love, to love God, to love our brothers and sisters, and to good works, to live right. The Bible says in 1 John, I believe it is, that if you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. Brother Glass used to say there'd be more people go to hell over that scripture than any other verse in the Bible. That's not necessarily scripture, but I think it's a true principle. So we are to consider one another. We've got to love our brethren. By this shall all men know. How can you be doing the by this if you have love one to another? How can you do that if you're not in the church? I don't mean the wall, I mean the, the called out, the ecclesia. How can we demonstrate the love of God? And it's not, it's not about loving those that love us. The difference in the love of God in the ecclesia is that we love one another regardless of flaws and shortcomings. But then the second part of that is not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. That means there are some people that don't think they need to go to church as much anymore. Now, that's the assembling together. Whether, whether you're talking about Paul in the book of Acts getting together on the riverside to have church, Paul's normal practice when he went to a new town was he went to the synagogue. He went in there, he preached to the Jews. When the Jews turfed him out, which was what usually happened, he went to the marketplace. He went down by the riverside where people were doing their laundry and whatever else, and he began to share with them, and they began to meet in different people's houses. So it might not have been a church building like ours, but the principle of assembling together was still there in the New Testament church. And Paul, or whoever the writer of Hebrews is, whether it's Paul or Apollos or whoever it was, they just said, they didn't say how often, they just said, don't forsake it. When When the ecclesia, when the body of Christ gets together, do what you can to be there. Do what you can to get together with your brothers and sisters. Amen. In fact, it says, even though there are some people that do that, it says, don't forsake that. Exhort one another. In the context, that means, come on, bro, let's go to the house of the Lord together. In fact, it says, and you do it more as you see the day approaching. More, not less. The pattern of society is to do it less because we're so busy. We're living in such a fast-paced life that we squeeze the house of God into our schedule. That's the pattern of mankind. The pattern of the Word of God is don't forsake it. But as we get closer to the coming of the Lord, do it more than you did before. Hallelujah. And we don't have, you know, some people think three church services a week is a lot. Trust me, that's mild compared to some places. You hear the old timers talk about revivals that went for weeks at a time where they had service every night of the week. Don't get scared. We're not about to do that at the moment unless the Lord leads me in that direction. But you know something? When they had those services, they didn't forsake it. They got to the house of God. Now, when we have people come here and join our church that have been a part of the United Pentecostal Church in other countries, and I'm 
I think it's fantastic that we have cultural diversity in the church. One of the questions I often ask them is, how do you find the difference between our church and the church you came from? And sometimes they'll talk about the structure of a service. Sometimes they'll talk about things they miss, and we, we understand that. But one of the most common comments I hear is about the length of our services. Ours are really short. <laughs> Ours are really short. There are some countries, they go to church on a Sunday, they start at 9 in the morning, and Sister Lena, is that right? They go all day just about. We get close to 12 o'clock, and people think, man, the pastor's long this morning. I'm hungry. <laughs> we start hallucinating about Kentucky Fried Chicken. But, you know, it's, it's, a part, it's, it's something that our culture affects us with. We've got to get in and get out. And I'm not interested in having long, drawn-out services. I don't like long, painful church any more than anybody else does. But it's a mindset we've got to watch. It's a mindset we've got to be careful of. We can't go, well, I made it to church Sunday morning. I've ticked that box. What else is on my schedule? You need the church. I say it again. You need the church. I need the church. I need you. Hallelujah. When I come into this place, if you're not here, it impacts me. Let me tell you, let me be honest. When I sit up here and I look out sometimes and this person's away and that person's away, I've got to shake myself and say, don't be discouraged. We're going to have church anyhow. We need one another. And the more, as you see, the day approaching. Here's the thing. The devil likes nothing more than to isolate you mentally. To get you thinking, nobody understands. Nobody cares. Or somebody's gone or whatever. Nobody knows where I'm at. That's a lie from the devil. If you feel like that, don't sit there in self-pity. Do something about it. Reach out to somebody. Make, don't wait for somebody to connect with you. Connect with somebody else because your soul depends upon it. Get to service. Get to prayer meeting. Get to something. Go out on a limb and say, can I get you a cup of coffee at some point? Don't allow yourself to become isolated in your mind. Bless the Lord. Some people say, well, I don't come to church anymore. They didn't talk to me. They weren't friendly, this and that. You know, so many things that I, over the years, I've heard people comment are just imaginations. They're imaginations. The devil gets into people's minds and he plants seeds. And before too long, those people have watered that seed with their own self-pity. And they are convinced that it is the gospel. And when you hear it, you think, where in the world did that come from? Bless the Lord. We've got to guard our minds. We've got to stay in the body of Christ. You know, one of the, one of the things, the thoughts that's been playing over and over in my mind, you know, when we went to Indonesia, let's stand, I'm coming to a close, I'll finish with this. When we went to Indonesia last September with the youth team, which was a fantastic trip, I got asked to, to speak at an engagement. They wanted me to preach at an engagement service and preach evangelistically, but at the same time, somehow weave in the fact that this young couple needed to keep themselves pure until they were married. I haven't had that experience until that time. But one of the things that as I began to, to pray and ask the Lord for direction and think about the Scripture, when you read about the bride of Christ, whether you read in Ephesians or you go right to the end in Revelation, the bride of Christ or the church 
is always described in terms of pureness and righteousness and flawless perfection and just a beautiful thing. But then I think, but that's us. And I hate to break it to you, but you and I aren't flawless. We're not perfect. In a spiritual sense, we're not necessarily all beautiful. We got lumps and bumps. But somehow, by the grace and the mercy of God, and by the power of the blood of Calvary and the empty tomb, he's able to take a bunch of imperfect, flawed humanity, wash it clean, and present it to himself spotless, the book says. I don't understand that. It's his righteousness. It's his blood. Anything about us that is attractive is because he clothes us in it. But you've got to be in the church. And one of the things that's missing from the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb, there ain't no bridesmaids. No flower girls. No page boys, no people that said, well, I don't want to be of this group. We're going to have our own little group over here. There's a bride and a groom, and that's it. And I'm determined, wherever I live and however long I live, I'm going to be in the church. Let's lift up.